I always remind people, I try to remind people, people who will listen, that cash is not a bad thing. Cash is an option, an opportunity. If you don't have cash available to you when the market is bad, you cannot get in when the buying opportunity is the greatest. So if you were putting every penny you have, and you know, especially if you're putting every penny that you have into the market at the top, not only do you not have the cash available to invest at the bottom, but a lot of that equity disappears when the market falls. Hi, you're listening to That Really Happened, Unbelievable Real Estate Stories. I'm your host, Ellie Perlman. If you're a real estate investor, this is the podcast for you. Our guest speakers will bring you amazing, intriguing, and unbelievable stories about real estate investing. The stories will be an honest and transparent account about what it actually means to invest in real estate. You'll hear stories that investors don't usually share. Stories about hardships, breaking points, painful truths, and surprising realizations. Sometimes there's a happy ending, and sometimes the story ends very differently than you would expect. So let's get the show started. Hey guys, welcome to That Really Happened. I'm Ellie Perlman, your host broadcasting from sunny California. You can look at the show notes and listen to all the podcasts, you know, episode on ellieperlman.com. So today I will host Jonathan Twombly, the owner of Two Bridge Asset Management and the host of the Real Estate Launchpad podcast, owner of the Multifamily Investment Community Group on Facebook and a national board member of the Harvard Real Estate Alumni Organization. Jonathan spent more than a decade as a Wall Street lawyer working on eight, nine, and 10-figure bet the company litigation in a number of high-profile cases. In 2011, he co-founded the multifamily investment company, TRB Investment Group. And in 2013, he went out on his own to found Two Bridges Asset Management, which until recently owned approximately 26 million of multifamily real estate. And that's very, very impressive. So Jonathan is a graduate of Harvard College and uh, has appeared on most major real estate investing podcasts. So I'm very, very excited to have him on my show today. And Jonathan is going to tell us a story of selling not only one or two of his properties, but his entire portfolio and it just happened recently so i really can't wait to hear that story welcome to the show jonathan ellie thank you so much i'm really glad to be here yeah absolutely so where are you uh, broadcasting from today so i'm in brooklyn new york all right you're from new york and your did you uh, your property your portfolio is only in new york or have you been buying out of state oh no we only bought out of state i mean new york is as you imagine one of those super expensive markets where it's yeah. very difficult to find stuff that makes sense. I mean, even at the bottom of the market, when I started, I felt New York was too expensive and it's only gotten more expensive since then. So I quickly decided not to invest here and to look for other places where there was more meat on the bone. Yeah, absolutely. Which uh, markets did you used to buy in? Yeah. So I started out with my first partnership looking at Louisiana and East Texas. And after I formed my own company, I focused on South Carolina. 
All right, that's a very, very strong market. And then, so let's start, you know, let's dive into uh, the story. When did it happen? What happened that made you, you know, think about, hey, I want to sell my entire portfolio. But maybe even before that, if you can walk us through of, you know, how many properties you own and a kind of the situation of, you know, where your company is. Sure. So we, we at the, at the peak of what we owned, owned about 400 apartments over four properties. As you said before, they were, they were worth about 26 million by the time we sold them. We, we picked them up for about 17 million originally. And my investment kind of trajectory was a little bit unusual. It took about a year, I'd say, before we were able to finally get one closed. I'd had some under contract before that, but it took about a year to get the first one actually closed. Despite having you know, plenty of investor capital lined up, just getting brokers to take us seriously and you know the whole drill it took took a long time once we got that first one closed and it sort of kind of rapidly started falling into place where we had lots of deals coming our way and and we're closing them you know with pretty regularity and then about 2015 2016 i started to notice a real uptick in the attention being paid to south carolina and the the prices you know, it had been a, a bit of an under-the-market radar, which is why what I was attracted to. It had really great demographics that nobody was paying attention to because they were all distracted by Texas. And you know, for me as a value investor, that was like catnip. I I, I love markets like that that have great demographics that other people are not paying attention to. When they start getting too hot, then the opposite happens, where I start getting kind of wary about things. So, which is why I avoided Texas in the first place. I just always felt that it was too hot to handle. So about 2015, 2016, a lot of investors started pouring into South Carolina. You know, looking back, I, I realized this kind of coincided with a real drop in interest rates, like a real uptick in in interest in multifamily, and also with just a lot of new syndicators coming into the market mm-hmm. all at the same time. And the the prices just started getting to the point where I just didn't feel like I could make money off of them given structure that we employed. Um, you know, using investor money, paying a, a high preferred return. And so really started pulling back around that time and waiting for, you know, for the market to cool off. We'd also been sort of around that time exploring, st- setting up a fund. And, you know, even though there seem to be people starting funds left and right at the moment now, because there's so much demand for multifamily and people who right. have never done, done a deal or raising funds back in 2015, what we were running into was a lot of skepticism. People were still very shell-shocked from the financial crisis. And also I was hearing from a lot, we were targeting the family office market. People were saying to me, you know, we're just full up on real estate already. We, we think the market's peaking. We don't, we don't really want to be involved anymore. So I, I was listening to those voices and, and seeing what I was seeing in the markets myself and just finding it very difficult to make deals work that I thought, you know, maybe this is time to sort of step back and, and be on the sidelines for a while. So at th- that was the point at which we really stopped actively looking for new deals to buy because we just felt we couldn't mm-hmm. make it work very well. And that was back in 2015, 2016, around that time? Around that time, yeah. Yeah. 
So you basically said that there was a lot of attention, you know, in Texas, and then you're, you were focused on South Carolina. So what, what really happens? And, you know, that would be great to kind of explain to the listeners what happens when there's a lot of buyers that, you know, get into a market. So, you know, someone who might not be active as an investor and a syndicator would say, okay, so there's a lot of demands. A lot of people are making an offer, but you have more experience than they do then why wouldn't, you know, the seller choose you, someone with experience who uh, has, you know, surety of closing, someone who already owns properties? Why would that be a problem? There are some sellers who may do that. If, you know, on the margins, if you're offering the same amount of money, then they're going to go with the group that has surety of close. But I think what happened was people started making really outrageous offers for properties and Mm -hmm the sellers would go for the money. And, you know, a, a very kind of vivid experience I had, really the last deal that I really bid on was one where some brokers that I know very well brought me an off-market deal. They said, you know, we haven't shown this to anybody else. We think this is really perfect for you and, and what you're trying to do, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to require an aggressive offer to get. And so we, we underwrote the deal. We put in really what I, I mean, I was almost uncomfortable with the offer that we put in. And I remember feeling as soon as I submitted the LOI, my first thought was, oh my God, I hope they don't accept it. And they came back saying, this is 20% below what we want for this deal. Wow. And at that point, I really started feeling like the market was just getting out of control and it was going to be very, very hard to find deals that that made sense. We were already seeing that, but that just really confirmed it for me. And so I think for a lot of people who are sort of coming into the market now, they, they just look at sort of a snapshot of where we are and think, well, this is what it costs to buy a deal. What they're not seeing is everything that, you know, where we've been over the last six or eight years and seeing how people are paying, you know, deals are coming back on the market and trading for, you know, double what they sold for five years ago. And it's the same deal. It, it, it really doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, people are paying, you know, people used to, if they were going to part with a dollar, they had to get 10 cents in return for it. Now they're willing to part with a dollar for five cents and it's the same dollar. So for me as a really value oriented investor, it's, it really makes no sense to be trying to buy in that situation. On the other hand, the calculation to sell starts looking really good when you start seeing people willing to overpay for property. So my internal kind of calculation started to change a bit. What, what really, though, sort of tripped me over the edge in terms of my decision-making process, you know, originally I had, I w- it had intended when I bought these properties and for everything that we buy to do a very long-term hold. I mean, we were looking at holding for 10 years, really maxing out the amortization, you know, taking advantage of just how, you know, time is your friend in real estate to, to just grow the value of these, of these assets. And... But when we started looking around at the pricing, you know, we were sort of already there in terms of pricing where we expected to be in, in 10 years. And we also, I also felt like I don't think this is going to continue for five more years. I think you know, it's going to go down before it goes up and there really may not be a better opportunity to sell than there is right now. And then sort of in that whole mixture of thinking, we did have one property that just wasn't doing well. It was just, it, it just, you know, everybody's got one, a property that just has everything go wrong with it that could possibly go wrong with it. You know, whether it was, you know, mold outbreaks, bad management, 
water main, you know, breakage. I mean, just sort of everything fires. I mean, like, like you name it, everything went wrong with this property that could go wrong. And we only had one investor in that property. And he just said, look, Jonathan, I'm just really done with this. I don't, I've got better uses for this money for, you know, than than this property that's not making any money for me right now. So I want to sell it. And so we started exploring that once I started getting into the, the thought process of selling that property and started seeing like testing the waters and seeing how much people were willing to offer me for this property that wasn't even making any money. Then I started thinking, well, gosh, if I sell all of it, how much money can we make? You know, will I ever, will it ever be better for my investors than it is right now? And then the third part of the thinking was, look, I'm still new at this in the sense that I haven't been through a full cycle. I haven't been through an exit. When I first got into the business, a lot of investors objected to investing with me because they said, look, I I think you're smart. I think you can do this, but you haven't experienced a full cycle yet. I wanted to go through the whole cycle and lock in the track record and be able to say to people, like, this is how many dollars I paid my investors, not oh, if we were to sell today, I think the cap rate is this and it would be worth this and then the IRR would be this. I mean, that's all just made up numbers. I wanted to be able to say to investors in the future, I paid the last round of people X dollars. They made this return on their money. And here's the accountant's write-up of that to show you if you don't believe me. I wanted to be in that position so that when the market becomes more favorable for buying, that we would be able to raise money a lot more easily the next time around. So- that was really the thinking behind selling everything. Right, right. And, you know, we also get overbid all the time. And I look at the numbers and I know what the properties, you know, is going for. And I just, I, I just don't, sometimes don't understand. I think it's one of two things. And you were also talking about that earlier. It's, one could be just inexperienced, you know, syndicators or investors that are not entirely, they don't entirely understand how to underwrite and, or they do, but in order to get they're so eager to get the deal that they're willing to do one of two things and they're both bad one is getting a smaller cut and i do think that everyone should be compensated well enough to make them you know still be involved and passionate about managing the assets so if you're not making a lot of money maybe you're not as you know committed and devoted to managing it well and then the second thing is just you know probably being aggressive so for instance if you if you buy something at a 5 cap and you think you're going to sell it for for 4.9 or for even 5 or 5.1 cap that's not being very conservative and so that's when you do that when you play around with those little numbers you can make very generous offers and the numbers look great and you can make any deal look great if you're being if you're not being conservative enough. I, I mean, I, I agree with you completely. I'm going to like add one thing, which I see a lot of people doing. You know, a lot of people have taken that standard underwriting metric where you're supposed to add on your exit 10 basis points for every mm-hmm. year that you hold the property, and they just apply that mechanically to these deals. So if they're going in at a five cap, they're saying I'm going to exit at a five and a half cap, mm-hmm. and if you exit anything at a five and a half cap, it's going to look really, really good. The problem is those assets that they're buying at a five cap probably naturally trade at an eight. So they should be exiting at something that's like the long-term, you know, mean reversion cap rate for that asset class in that market. And they think they're being conservative because they're saying, oh, well, I'm exiting at five basis, you know, at Mm -hmm. 50 basis points higher than I bought, but they're not being conservative at all. That rule of thumb only applies like 
is sort of at the midpoint in the market, right? It doesn't apply now when you're at the top when people are paying historically low cap rates for things. So they're convincing themselves, or maybe they're just ignorant about being conservative on their underwriting when they're not. They're being very, very aggressive. And that's really the only reason some of these deals are working. Um, there's just a lot of inexperienced investors. And I think that just sort of happens at the end of every cycle. Right. You have a lot of people who are who have no perspective on where we've been. And they're also just, you know, what happens is you see the early players selling and making money. And when people find out how much money they've made, they, they get really anxious to get in. But the problem is you can't replicate that because you're buying at the top, right? All the appreciation has, has happened. The cap rate compression has already happened. So people getting in now, you know, as long as it lasts, they're fine. But when it starts to correct, and it will at some point, I just hope they've had enough time to build in enough, you know, rent growth cushion that they can protect themselves on the on the way down when they have the cap rate decompression and they've got you know falling occupancy rates and stuff like that. So yeah, that's a very interesting perspective, and and so you know I want to kind of go back to the story that you're basically realizing that this is the best time to sell and and you're deciding to sell all of your portfolio. So there was that one asset that with that one investor that said. I'm on board, I'm willing to sell. Was it easy to have that conversation with the rest of your investors? Were they on board with selling everything? Because initially they were, they wanted to hold the properties for, you know, seven, 10 years. And now all of a sudden they cut the investing cycle by half. I would have assumed that some of them would be happy to receive their, you know, projected IRR, which you can only know when you sell the property, right? You know, to make, have that return, those returns in half of the time that, they, that was projected, but was that acceptable to everyone? Not a single person objected. You tell investors that you're, that you're giving their money back to them with a big profit on top of it, mm-hmm. and they're very happy to hear that news. Like Nobody said, oh my God, Jonathan, this is terrible. What am I going to do with this money? Like, <laughs> nobody said that to me. They said, congratulations on a great result. Thank you very much. The idea that people... I mean, I do know that there is a type of person out there who, for whom... like if every penny is not invested at every moment, they, they get anxiety or something, you know, and to the point where they want to put money into the market. Now, I always remind people, or try to remind people, people who will listen, that cash is not a bad thing. Cash is an option, an opportunity. If you don't have cash available to you, when the market is bad, you cannot get in when the buying opportunity is the greatest. So if you were putting every penny you have, and you know, especially if you're putting every penny that you have into the market at the top, not only do you not have the cash available to invest at the bottom, but a lot of that equity disappears when the market falls, right? So the idea that, that you, you can't possibly have money on the sidelines you know, set aside for the great opportunity is, to my mind, it kind of nuts. And some of the greatest investors out there, like some people like Seth Garman, like he's 50% in cash all the time, all the time, half in cash. And he's made off the charts returns. And it's because he's got dry powder ready for all those opportunities. So the idea that you should be investing all of your cash all the time and not setting aside at least some of it for, for the great opportunities is, is misguided in my view.
And so you sold all your property, all the entire portfolio. And so what's next for you? Are you waiting to see what the market, how the market is going to, you know, behave and then buy at the right opportunity and then just sitting on the side, you know, on a sideline right now and observing what's happening? Is that your plan? So I'm doing a couple of things now. I continue to bring investors onto my platform. You know, there's a specific kind of person who agrees with me on the market. They tend to be more conservative mm -hmm. and at the same time, a little more opportunity oriented. Uh, so I continue to bring people into the platform who are patient and are willing to, to wait uh, until the next opportunity comes. Obviously, they don't have to give me any money. I mean, there's no, you know, it's a syndication business. Mm -hmm. So th they, they keep their money, but they're just people who, you know, I have the same conversation with them all the time when they, when we have our initial call, like, Hey, if you're, if you're dying to invest right now, I have, you know, 10 friends that I trust I can, I can introduce you to, but if you want to invest with me, you're going to have to wait till the timing is better. And I've never had anybody say no to that proposition. So I, I continue to bring people in. I'm also very focused on an education business that I've developed where, you know, one of the things that, so I got into the business in 2011 initially and even though that was relatively early in the cycle, I remember being so envious of the people who jumped in right after the crash and like were essentially printing money because they got in at such the right time and they were buying assets. I remember having conversations with people telling me that they were buying portfolios of multifamily property for $7,000 a unit, right? Because wow. they, were buying, they were buying stuff from, you know, REOs, from banks, from investors who got upside down. I mean, there was so much opportunity. And not to say that that's going to happen again, because I don't think that the next correction, you can't prepare for the, the last correction, right? It's not, it's not going to repeat itself. But that being said, the bottom of the cycle is always a really good time to invest. And I remember feeling just all of the angst from having missed it. And so not only am I like getting myself ready for it, but I'm training other people to get ready for it. Because, you know, for me, I just wish that I had been, I was on the sidelines. I watched the whole thing happen. I watched it crash. And, but I wasn't ready to get in because I didn't know what I was doing yet. So w my proposition to people who, who come and work with me in my program is we're getting ready for the next opportunity. I'm going to make sure that you can hit the ground running for that and, and not be caught with your pants down, so to speak. You know, you'll be ready to go with your, your broker network, your investor network, the whole thing. Very, very interesting. Well, thank you so much, Jonathan, for, you know, sharing, you know, your story with us. I think your perspective is very interesting, especially to me, because I'm, I'm also ex an extremely conservative investor. Maybe it's got something to do with the fact that we're both used to be lawyers. So, you know, <laughs> that definitely has some, some impact there. So if, you know, we got to the end of our interview and I always ask my guests the same question, which is what would you tell your 20 year old self? I would tell my 20 year old self that nobody is paying any attention to you at all. So you can do whatever you want. Like there's, don't worry about what other people think because nobody actually really cares what you're doing. So just go and do the thing that makes you happy and excited and passionate. Awesome. That's an awesome advice. If our listeners would like to reach out to you, where can they find you? So they can find me if they want to invest with me. The best place to go is to my website, which is twobridgesmanagement.com. There's two bridges spelled out in MGMT for management. They can, or they can just email me at twombly at twobridgesmanagement.com. If they want to learn more about the uh, education programs, they can email me at jonathan at multifamilylaunchpad.com. They can also join my Facebook group, which is the Multifamily Investment Community, which is it's obviously free. And I'm in there every day answering questions. That's where they can reach me. And also I have a download if people want. I have an ultimate checklist 
which basically takes you through, it's like a nine page checklist that takes you through every step of the syndication process. And if you want to have a look at that, it's like a roadmap to syndication. You can get that at uh, multifamilylaunchpad.org. It's not .com, but multifamilylaunchpad.org slash ultimate checklist. And you can download that for free. All right. Perfect. Thank you so much for being here today, Jonathan. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Ellie. It was great. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.